0: So this morning we come at, would you believe it, to our fourth sermon in this chapter? Shows what a rich uh, source of teaching it is. Um, three weeks ago, we had the sign for the crowd, the sign for the masses, the feeding, probably not of 5,000, probably of closer to 20,000 uh, people. Then two weeks ago, we had the sign just for the 12. Jesus walking on water and the boat being taken straight to the other side. Last week we had uh, the explanation of the sign for the masses. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And now this morning we come to the reaction. The reaction of the masses, the reaction of the crowd of disciples, with a small d if you like and the reaction of the twelve, in the verses which Jill has just read. In, In our time together this morning, I'd like to do two things, and hence I'll do each of them relatively briefly. The first is to go back to last week, and to try and set this bread of life teaching in the context of a service of Holy Communion. And the second is to look at our passage and to look at reactions to Jesus. We need to preface both of those things by looking at the beginning of our passage. It begins with people complaining. Nothing changes, does it, over 2,000 years. It begins with people complaining. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So what was this hard saying that the disciples, with both a small and a big D, struggled with? It was the teaching that came immediately prior to our passage in the Capernaum Synagogue. John 6, verses 53 and 54. One of those truly, truly sayings of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. Now if we're honest with ourselves, that is truly hard teaching. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? Well, first of all, I'd like to think about, just for a few minutes, the relationship between John 6 and A service of Holy Communion. Because in our communion service here, um, uh, one in this uh, service once a month, one across the benefits uh, at least once each week. This is the second one I've taken this morning. Whenever we meet together around the Lord's table, we make the association, don't we, between the body of Jesus and the bread. And we make the association between the blood of Christ and the cup of wine the form of words we might use uh, might be a little bit different each week according to whether it's prayer book or uh, common worship and according to the kind of personal tastes of the officiant but whatever words we say we make that connection indeed Jesus does the very same thing so we're not kind of making it up as we go along in the Church of England and at least not on this subject Um, that Jesus says the same thing at the Last Supper. He makes that connection between his body and the consummation of bread and his blood and a cup of wine. And Paul reiterates it in 1 Corinthians 11. And then both Jesus and Paul instruct faithful believers to continue to observe that Lord's Supper until he returns. And so what we're doing together this morning is part of that faithful following of a very direct instruction of Jesus at the Last Supper. So last week, John um, very helpfully explained to us uh, some of what it means when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, but he did it in the context of our harvest festival service. And that was a really helpful thing to do as we were bringing forward our gifts of food and it strikes me helpful, at least I hope, for us to go back to that passage in a way that John couldn't have done in the context of what we're celebrating together this morning in Holy Communion. And a good time. So I think this is something which the Church of England is very slow to teach on. I don't know what your experience was before I arrived, but I haven't heard many sermons on what actually is going on in Holy Communion. And I think now with John 6 open in front of us is a good time just at least to begin to think about some of the issues before we gather around the Lord's table. So what extent does our pattern of taking communion fulfil the teaching of Jesus in John 6? That we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. I think that there are essentially three different positions that believing men and women take on this question. There are always many more refinements than three, but I think there are essentially three positions that people take. The first of those I'm going to call the Catholic position which is that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Jesus at the point of the prayer of consecration by the priest. You will have heard that probably referred to as transubstantiation. That teaching rests very heavily on the passage that we've been studying this month here at St. Mary's. I have a book in my study um, it was used at Vicar School and it's now gathering dust uh, by Joseph Ratzinger, the um, previous Pope, on Holy Communion. And his explanation of what is going on at Holy Communion starts at John 6. I am the bread of life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Secondly, as what I would call, and this is a dangerous thing to call, the mainstream Anglican position. It's, it's, it's built upon, it's, it's where Martin Luther went. We'll be celebrating, goodness knows how many hundred years of, of Martin Luther, uh, next year. And this is where, this is where he went, which is that the bread and wine become the flesh and blood of Jesus upon reception through the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the faithful believer. Let me say that again. The bread and the wine become the flesh and blood of Jesus upon reception, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and in the heart of the faithful believer. And that, I think, still looks to be a fulfillment of John 6, in quite a direct way. It says something different about when the bread becomes the body and when the wine becomes the blood. But it still wants to speak very directly to John chapter 6. The third position that I think people hold is what you might call the Protestant or Reformed position. Which essentially says nothing happens to the bread and to the wine. Communion is an act of remembrance, of remembering, of reenacting the Last Supper and hence of remembering Jesus' death. This position says that actually John 6 has nothing to do with Holy Communion and that the body blood is an analogy for our spiritual life. Now I suspect that there are people, no, 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 I don't suspect, I know there are people in church this morning that hold each one of those three positions and will hold subtle variations of them. There'll be some people that are really quite fed up with me about how i portrayed the position that you um, uh, uh, hold. Come and grab me afterwards. But there are people here that will hold each of those three positions. And I personally see no reason why each of those can't be held with integrity. And one of the interesting features of a semi-rural parish such as this is that as we meet together around the Lord's table, we do so having come from different traditions we don't live in a big city where there are 20 different churches to choose from and we can go to the one where everyone thinks exactly the same as me however much we'd like to be in one of those churches we don't do that here and so it actually says something I think about how we approach the Lord's table that we do so as the communion of faithful believers each of us with integrity and each of us seeking faithfully to apply the teaching of Jesus to our act of worship and remembrance. And so could I... I guess what we'd ideally do is that we'd stop now for an hour, um, and we'd have some coffee, and we'd all kind of re-look at John chapter 6, and then we'd just think prayerfully about it. Um, and we 're not sorry we 're not going to do that, but what, but what I would encourage you to do is as you go home sometime in the next three or four days, and this is one of the things you need to be intentional about, because if you're anything like me, you'll come kind of be nodding now what a great idea this was, and then you won 't do it <laughs> i 'm the same so i, I, I don 't know and actually study this chapter, study the whole of the chapter, study the chapter beginning at the feeding of the 5,000, because that's where Jesus starts here. Study the chapter at the beginning, the feeding of the 5,000, and think through what is going on here for me, a disciple with a small d of Jesus, and in what way is the act that we're about to uh, complete uh, over the rest of the morning a fulfilment of that, But also, critically, if you feel able to do that, then make the next step and say, what does it mean for me to be in God's family in this place at this time, sharing the Lord's Supper with people that think about this slightly differently? And what can I learn from them? And how is our spiritual life enriched by that? And that's been a really helpful thing for me to do over the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing for today. And if you feel able, and you're less forgetful than me, then kind of encourage you to take, it'll take about an hour I should think, to do that. To think about what it is that we're doing here. Okay, let's move on very quickly to our passage this morning, because I think this is also quite instructive uh, for us. We have in the middle of John 6 this hard teaching. And what Jill read to us records the fact that many of the crowds, the disciples, those that were fed at the feeding of the 5,000. So that, if you like, the the choreography of John 6 is, is a big crowd gathers, excited by all the miracles that Jesus has done. They're on the mountainside, Uh, They haven't brought their picnic. Jesus feeds them. And then those crowds get super excited about who Jesus is. And while he sends the disciples quietly in the night over the lake, the next morning when they wake up, they realise the disciples aren't there. Jesus isn't there. Where are they? And they follow him in a flotilla of boats across Lake Galilee to Capernaum, where he gives the teaching that John and I have spoken about over the last couple of weeks. And then, from that super excitement, they find, ah, the teaching is hard. It's not just about being, you know, filling our tummies with bread. Being there for the here and now. There's something more to it. And what happens is, the majority of the disciples of the crowds, or the followers of the masses, turn back. Many of his disciples turn back and no longer walked with him. Notice how quickly, from the high point of the feeding of the 5,000, we have brought down. <laughs> but, the way in which John has written this paragraph, and remember that in all that we've learned so far in John, John is, John is very careful in the way that he organizes his material. He's very thoughtful, and he's organizing his material for the church this is not just a serialised biography of Jesus. He's organising his material for the church. And I think that in the way that he organises his material and in the way that Jill read it, we are supposed to contrast the reaction of the crowd with the reaction of the twelve. As many people are turning back, and you can kind of picture them, they've come across the lake to Capernaum, and actually they've heard Jesus preach and like, oh, now they're going back, they're going back into their boats and they're turning away. That great flotilla of boats has been turned around and at that moment Jesus turns to the twelve and says, what about you? Are you going to go too? And as is so often the case, Peter answers for them all and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? you have the words of eternal life. And I think John wants us to understand the contrast between the reaction of the crowd and the reaction of Peter and the other eleven. But notice what, G- what Peter does not say. Peter does not say, ah, it wasn't hard teaching for us. We got it. They are going, but we don't find that hard. Peter doesn't say that. Peter implicitly does find the teaching hard and we know through what we know of the rest of the Gospels and particularly of Peter that he does have a hard time with the teaching of Jesus. No, Peter says, where else are we going to go? Lord, sometimes your teaching is hard But by faith we know that you have the words of eternal life. The twelve say we're staying with you, Jesus, not because of our superior understanding, not even for our comfort. We're staying because we have a glimpse of who you are and what your words mean. And at the end of this tumultuous chapter in John's Gospel, I think John wants us to know that therein lies the confession of true discipleship. The true disciple is not the one who is fed and is satisfied. The true disciple is not even the one that kind of gawks at the walking over the water and thinks, wow, who could do that? Certainly the true disciple is not the one who kind of gets the teaching. Because it's hard. It's hard. The true disciple is the one who has a glimpse of who Jesus is and understands that he alone has the words of eternal life. And so as we contrast the reaction of the crowd and of the twelve, we begin to see the pivotal role of faith. And actually really quite a simple faith. that the twelve stayed was not about understanding or insight, but about faith in who Jesus is and what his words represent. And so as we, if we do spend some time reflecting on this chapter and our own understanding of following Jesus and of coming and meeting together and of a service of Holy Communion, Then may our prayer be that of Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Spend a minute of quiet and just ask God to help us be able to do that for ourselves through the rest of this morning and in the coming week.